Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. Every business, new and old, needs to have a startup mentality. If you don't always have that startup mentality, you might be missing something. You might not be transforming. You might not be taking advantage of the best opportunities. And we're going to talk about a 75-year-old startup and the path to that company and what that looks like and what you can learn from it. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Appreciate you listening to the episode today. We are always on C-Suite Radio. I appreciate them for their hosting of the platform. And I also want to um, thank my sponsor, The Wine Ambassador, which is America's fastest growing wine club. If you want wine that you're not just randomly pulling off a shelf, but is hand selected for you, go to wineadam.com and learn about what they're doing and how you can have wine delivered to your house. Today's guest transformed a small family business into a global market leader in the coffee industry with customers in over 70 countries and distribution facilities on three continents. In the process, sales grew more than 25 times while earnings multiplied over 275 times. After the sale of that business, he moved to Florence, Italy, wrote a book that we're gonna talk about, and now lives there with his wife and three daughters. Josh Dick, thanks for joining today, I appreciate it. Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to talking to you. You're very welcome. And I, I can't wait to sort of to dig into the, the startup mentality that you kept throughout your time running the business. But I do want to start with your path. So it, you had a family business. It, you mentioned it uh, before the show. It wasn't something that you were always going to be in. You weren't born to be in the family business. You had a little bit more traditional path. What led you to sort of this entrepreneurial journey that you ended up on? Yeah, I think it's exactly, it was truly a journey. I was trying to figure out who I was and who I wanted to be while I, as I grew up. And over the course of sort of my professional development, I, I started my career out of um, undergraduate at Solomon Brothers doing traditional investment banking. And I absolutely hated it. I learned incredible amount of uh, things about attention to detail and managing expectations and quantitative stuff, but investment banking was not for me. I moved on from there and I went to graduate school at the Kellogg School at Northwestern with the ambition of changing my career path entirely. And I was going to, I knew that I, I had a desire to make or touch something. And for that, I, I looked to marketing and my next role, well, I went right from business school into Unilever, the global giant in consumer packaged goods and learned classical marketing and sales. And um, while I did well in that organization, I also knew that I had some burning desire to try and do things on my own. And um, at about that time, the business that had been started uh, by my great grandfather in the 1930s was actually having a lot of troubles, having lost a few clients and customers. And I went into that business to really help the family take a look at things. I had no intention of staying, but um, after some period of time, I realized that there was something within the core group of products that I thought maybe I had a chance to do something with. And that's really where the startup mentality came and, and kind of what I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to grow and develop. As you were having those conversations with the family, were you looking at starting your own business? Was there any push pull or was it really just a natural transition from Unilever to the family business? 
You know, it was a hesitantly natural transition. I'd say I went um, very uncertain about whether or not I was going to stay or be all in. I would almost call what I did a, a leave of absence to dip my toe in and see how it worked. And it took me six, eight months to to really say, okay, you know what? Let me try and do something with this. There were a number of conditions, a number of things about working within the family that didn't quite suit me, but um, things worked out for the best. And um, I started to really identify the need that this very diverse, uh, st- quite very, very small business had one product line within it that maybe I could do something with. And that was, you know, how the commitment arose and how I decided to really get in. Cool. And would uh, last sort of question on, on, on that is, uh, did the family bring you in or was there any, sometimes with families, fathers and sons or uncles, someone comes in who's the younger kid, the hotshot who went to business school. Was it something that they needed or was there some hesitancy on their side to have the next generation take over? My family, my dad in particular, was just amazing. There was never any pressure, never any expectation. I had this luxury of if I wanted to get involved at some point, I was more than welcome to do so. But there was no pressure. There was no desire. I really just kind of found my way there after getting to a point at Unilever where it was like, okay, what's next? And some of these problems were going on. And um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Tommy Boy. Um, <laughs> Multiple times. So basically my first couple of weeks there were like, I was Chris Farley. And I went around <laughs> the country trying to figure out how to get these uh, eight or 10 customers that had left the business back and knocking on doors. It was a very humbling experience, but it was in that experience of traveling around and meeting customers and trying to understand what's going on that I realized maybe there was something that I could do and create here. Um, so um, that was my Tommy Boy tour. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have a sidekick with you? I did not. I did did not not. have a David Spade with you. (laughs) No. Probably would have made it more fun uh, (laughs) going around the country. So you're going, you've got a business background, right? From schooling and and from a large corporation, two large corporations in Solomon and and Lehman Brothers and uh, and, uh, Unilever. And then you you come into the business and you're on the sales side. You're going out there. Really, it's, it's promotion. It has nothing to do with manufacturing or the numbers or any of that. You're you're trying to drive more revenue, right? Was that really where you started? Yeah, that was where I started because honestly, I went into the business thinking that everything else was was perfect and that they just needed help selling. And what I realized was like a lot of businesses that I've seen over the years, uh, really not none of it was where I expected it to be in terms of the context of experiences I had. There, It became a job where I wore every hat once it became just really me involved and the team that I subsequently built. So there were operational challenges, there were manufacturing, there were distribution, there were product packaging, marketing. I mean, pretty much everything. I thought I was just going to go sell, 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 break the production system until it needed to catch up and everything would be great. And um, it turned out that it was, it was a long, hard path that required a lot of discipline and a lot of focus and prioritization because there were any number of things that any small business needs to have corrected. And you, you have to make a decision. Are you going to do them all at once or can you, can you do one at a time? And uh, for me, I decided it was really important to do each one at a time and do it really well. And I started with the brand and I started with the presence in the market and the identity of the business. And why did you choose that? I think it's my background. You know, I had this Unilever background where I had been classically trained trained as a marketer, but also through my MBA education, all the other places I had been, 
um, in investment banking, I recognize that the brand is what commands a premium. You know, without a brand, you're just selling, you know, salt, 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 or Morton salt. And uh, you pay a little bit more for Morton salt um, or, you know, oil, 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 or Penn's oil. Um, I, I had that really in, innate sense that I didn't want to run a business that was just selling a commodity and squeaking by. I wanted to build a business that commanded a huge premium in the market. I wanted it to be profitable because my objective in building a business was to make money. And I wanted it to be, a, I wanted to be as um, successful from that standard as possible. And I thought the brand was the way to do it. And while this wasn't that long ago that you did this, it, it, it's not really today's world where brand is, is a big word. People talk about brand, whether it's a small business, whether it's personal brand. Personal brand is huge right now, especially in the corporate space. How did you go about building a brand? Yeah. Right? What steps did you take? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to, uh, to allude to it in a too much of a salesman-y fashion, but when I, <laughs> when I sold the business and eventually moved, I sat down and tried to write um, a book, which was, I consider my no-nonsense guidebook or tool book for how to do these things. And the book, as we talked about earlier, is called Grow Like a Lobster. And in it, it's actually a step-by-step -step process for what do you have to do first? And I have sort of five opening steps that begin with identifying the one thing that you want to focus your, your business on. My business had seven distinct product lines that were unrelated to one another. I made the choice to close six of them and sacrifice over 50% of the business's revenue and focus only on being in the coffee industry. And what we ended up doing was our one thing was making cleaning products for coffee machines. And um, I really articulated that in a way that we put uh, almost like horse blinders on. That was the only thing my business was going to do and we were going to get rid of everything else. So that's, that's where the brand starts, I believe, in, in identifying one thing and having that priority. And uh, from there, once you go from there, it's really articulating it and writing it down in a, the form of a proper mission statement, not one that's you know up high in the sky, but really taking that and going out and understanding the consumer and the customer. And I sort of have this process where I like to step through to say, who are we talking to? What is this brand gonna be all about? And let's really make sure that we recognize that we are not the audience for our brand. We have to understand who we're talking to. And I spent a pretty concerted sort of 18 to 24 months honing that in, learning my industry, understanding coffee and understanding what message I wanted my products to convey to the industry and to the customer audience. You mentioned that you went on sort of your Tommy Boy, Tommy Boy tour as you, as you started this, and you probably learned a lot of what you're talking about through talking to those customers, especially the eight or 10 that you said left. What did you learn about why they left and how did you uncover an opportunity to win them back? So the customers that left, it's very interesting, left uh, because there was no brand. There was no reason to stay. My family had been selling them, you know, acceptable products that served a function. Not all of the products uh, for customers that left were those related to the coffee industry. But what I realized is that um, there was no identity for the business. And what I started to learn in my desire to focus on the coffee industry is that I had this unique audience of very passionate people in the coffee industry and certain things were important to them. And I started to sort of start hanging out in coffee shops in the Pacific Northwest 
um, you know, I joked, I listened to grunge <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and really tried to understand what was going on with the coffee consumer. So being out there and interacting, I, I happen to believe that being out there talking to the customer and being with the customer, um, uh, being with your vendors is the best thing you can ever do for your business because it's an opportunity to open your eyes to different ways of thinking of things and doing things. And, and it helps you to remember that your way is not always the only is, is not the only way. And if you can expand your eyes and think about who you're trying to talk to and what's important to them, you can be so much better at serving and delivering them value. So you've got, you've got a brand, you've got some sales going, you've righted the ship, so to speak. Mm -hmm. How do you identify or how did you identify sort of the next steps in whether it was operations or manufacturing or distribution centers how did you pick the next steps or how did you sequence them? We don't have to necessarily dig into yeah. each one individually, but how did you sequence them in a way that, uh, that put you on a path to the explosive growth that, you, that the company finally achieved? Yeah, I think, I think it was a lot about staying focused and disciplined about being focused on really doing one thing really well. And because we were based in the U S my first mission and objective was to develop products that worked for, the customer base in the US, but also one day had the opportunity to be taken globally. I was fortunate enough to very quickly realize that in my industry in coffee, whatever you were selling to an American coffee related customer was actually quite pretty much the same thing you might sell to someone in Spain or France or Italy or Japan or Korea. So I wanted to get our products right in the US but also be ready to take them internationally. That was something that I recognized pretty quickly um, as an opportunity. So my sequence was great products, great brand, logical packaging. Now let's see how we go internationally. Let's see where we can find the same customer target or profile that we're being successful with in the US in other countries around the world. So it was a step-by-step -step. and with that came logistical requirements. So from starting to find an opportunity to go um, outside the US. We were doing it at first with, you know, FedEx boxes and, and UPS and, and then, you know, it made it very difficult to be competitive delivering product to Germany when there were already producers of similar products in Germany. So the next logical step was opening distribution center in Europe and identifying the right place. And boy, we're doing the same thing in Asia that came a little bit later than Europe. And next thing we knew we opened a distribution center in Hong Kong. Same model, same product line, same packaging. That was the other thing we did very well. We had one set of packaging that could be used with 32 different languages on it around the world. So we weren't managing multiple SKUs. We tried to be very, very focused on the same great stuff you could buy in New York, you could buy in Tokyo or uh, Shanghai or Milan. We're talking with Joshua Dick on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. You can uh, find more information about him and everything he's doing. Then we're going to dive into his book and, and what he's doing today at joshua-dick.com. When you're looking at going global, for, well, so you've got a product that people buy month after month after month or week after week, depending yep. on, on, on what they're doing. So once you have a customer, you can almost put them on an auto ship mentality. Um, how did that allow you to scale the business yep. when you had that solid revenue that you know was coming in on a regular basis? Yeah, that, the difference between, a, to me, consumables versus durables, uh, I'm a consumables guy. I love the fact <laughs> that you can make the sale and as long as you don't screw it up, um, they keep coming back to buy it. You know, once, once you have them on autopilot, you have to be sure that you don't disappoint 
Um, but once you have one customer under your belt, you can focus on the next. Or in my case, it was more focusing on bringing something in addition to the first product to the original customer. I have this sort of philosophy that I think it's much easier to sell to those that already know and are comfortable with you uh, than to try and start from scratch with someone new. And you have to do a little bit of both. But, um, and that was really how the business focused. We tried to expand our product portfolio within this world of coffee machine cleaning products and be able to offer uh, the big chains who we were all, we were fortunate enough to be supplying one product to a second and a third and a fourth down the road. And at the same time, uh, I think the credibility of having been accepted by some of these large uh, specialty coffee retail chains around the world made it easier to go convince those that had not yet become familiar with our products or brands that we were legit and we were worth talking to. And uh, so one thing sort of built upon the next. You mentioned that you built a, a team that uh, eventually took, help, helped you transform the business. Uh, I want to talk again, it's just like the sequencing of, of the different departments. What was your sequencing in, in hiring people and how did you go about that process building the right team? Yeah, no, it's 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 great question because um, it started opportunistically and then it became structurally organized. Uh, the first most amazing hire was um, for my job. Basically, I hired to fill my sales job and I happened to opportunistically have had a great contact within the industry of someone who I read a press release that the business he had been running sales for had been sold to Starbucks. And... Um, I knew that uh, everyone from the company had been offered jobs at Starbucks, but I knew that this guy was not going to work inside a big company. He's a salesman. And I called him up and congratulated him on the uh, success. He had done such a good job selling the uh, machines that he was representing that Starbucks bought the whole company. It was called the Clover. If you want to look it up, it was a very cool story. And I said, what are you going to do now? He said, ah. And I said, dude, you should definitely think about coming to work for me. And he is today running, uh, you know, all of uh, sales for the Americas for the business and was the number one guy. After that, though, I started to realize that I couldn't just be lucky and fall into people. And I developed this philosophy of dreaming of an organizational chart that included all the positions that I wish we had someone doing that I was then doing or other people were then doing. And um, one by one, I went out and found those people. First was um, what I would call a, sort of a chief operating officer um, or a chief of everything that Josh didn't want to do. I had a, found an amazing, amazing woman with a Harvard MBA who had been relocated to the area and was effectively a uh, stay-at-home mom under, under sort of reluctance. And we, we worked out an incredible relationship where she joined the team. And from there, we moved next to filling operations positions and uh, establishing a broader marketing team. But each key new hire that I brought into the organization, I did in succession. I was very careful not to try and hire them all at once. I have this business philosophy I, I talk about in, in the book about sort of trying to... Um, drive with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at the same time, not sort of going too hard, too fast, not causing too much stress. I know you can't do, you don't do that. <laughs> drive with, with both feet. Um, but yeah, We've all tried person, it though. yeah, but each person came on in sort of a six or eight month cycle. And for me, I had, because when I started in the business, we were only 12 employees. 
I was able to bring them on and say, you know, I've been doing your job because we didn't have your job before. And I was able to really give them a clear understanding of what I thought was needed, but also let them go and give them a true opportunity to put their imprint and their fingerprint on it. And over the course of two or three years, I built a team of an executive team of six or seven core, core leaders who we just worked incredibly well together, had loads of fun, which to me was the best and most important part of business. And we're just really special people and uh, all done one after the other and each supporting the next. And it sounds like you throughout this process had a CEO mentality. Sometimes for business owners, it's, they don't run the company. They're, they're, doing the company, right? It sounds like you had a mentality of this path, path for growth. Was there sort of a transition point from Josh doing everything to this sort of leader of an organization that happened? Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> I will never forget. There was a night that I was sitting at a dinner with um, friends. My wife and I were out to dinner with another couple and I like I, I shouldn't have. I looked at something on my phone, uh, email. I, I don't know. I was, I was bad about that. I've gotten much better about not <laughs> interrupting things. <laughs> and I saw news of a new hire that someone um, that had joined our business. And I never heard about them or never known that they, we were bringing someone in for this position. And I said, wow, this thing is really running. This is really happening. Um, somebody hired somebody. I'm I trust them completely. And I love the fact that I was not even made aware that we were bringing someone into the organization. That was a moment that I was like, I have great people. They're putting on great new business, doing incredible things. It's my job to help them stay prioritized and focused and to bring what I can to kind of push and also make sure they don't waste time or go down the wrong path. And that was really what my job became. I love that. And, and it led to obviously a great organization that someone wanted to buy. So you sell the business. Mm -hmm. How difficult a process was that? Not a process of the mechanics, but a, but a mental process. This, this was a family business. You rebuilt it sort of from the ground up. You said a 75-year-old startup, you always had that yep. sort of startup mentality. How difficult was it to, to let go, I guess, for lack of a better term? So I was super blessed by the fact that I never really aspired or imagined myself selling the business. All I ever wanted to do was create what I call my dream job. I wanted to be having fun. I wanted to be achieving. I wanted to be working with great people. And I built that over time. I built this organization that gave me a lot of freedom and flexibility to do things. And I had my dream job. And there came a point in time when I realized that the value of the business was more than I expected. And um, because of that, I started to go explore the process or opportunities for sale because I got a little bit scared about the fact that we had had this 15 years of greater than 15% annual growth. And I started to worry that the value might be hurt should something bad happen. I mean, we were selling chemicals. There were all of these things going on that there were risks. And I very proactively went out and sought um, potential uh, investors or buyers with the help of a um, investment bank. And I was not waiting for someone to call me. I actually went out and wanted to understand who the potential buyers were. And because I loved my job so much, I had this dream job mentality. I told the banker, they have to pay me a lot for me <laughs> to give this up. And you have to also find me people that I'm going to enjoy working with and working for, if that should become the case, where it changes from me being the owner only to having these partners. And because of that, I held all the power. 
So the process was hard and it was a pretty limited audience of PE firms that I thought I would enjoy working with. Um, No offense to the PE world, but some of them I don't think I would have enjoyed working with. And um, they had to, they had to pay really well because if the price wasn't right, I was just as happy going back to my job and approaching it a couple of years later. And I was very fortunate that we found an incredible uh, partner investor firm and um, they treated me incredibly well. I continued to stay on as the CEO and work with them almost as if nothing had changed. Um, but a little bit of pressure was taken off because I obviously had this newfound financial security, not being the um, sole owner, but having partners and having, you know, still an equity position. Awesome. And, and so you took that opportunity, you moved your family to Florence. I'm sure we can read about that in the book. I don't want to take time here, but yeah. you, you wrote a book and you, you told me before the show was really because you wanted to write a book of everything you wish that you had known before going into this process. Right. And that's like, that's what this show is all about is those things that you learned when, when you sat down to write the book, what were sort of the top two things that you wanted just to get out there for people to learn? Yeah, it's it's funny. And just just as an aside, you know, the, the book that's called Grow Like a Lobster, one of the titles was Stuff They Don't Teach You in Business School. Um, so, it, <laughs> uh, But the lobster metaphor came later. But yeah, one or two things. I think for me, um, I really think it's important that an entrepreneur of any sort um, avoid distraction. Figure out who it is you want to be and go for it. Do not try and straddle the fence. Do not try and diversify within your business. Stock market is there to diversify your value and your assets and your investments. Your business needs to be really good at one thing. And if you do that, it becomes a lot easier to um, manage your resources, manage your time, manage your effort. I, you know, I came into that family business that I said had so many different product lines that were unrelated. And I, I really learned a lot from that and seeing the challenges of trying to run a seven product line business and said, I'm never going to do that. I think the number one thing you can do is figure out who you are, what you want to be and go for it. And don't expect yourself to fail and don't give yourself a chance to fail. Go pursue that one thing. I'm not saying put all your eggs in one basket stupidly, do the work, do the research, identify the market, figure out what it is. But figure out who you want to be and just go do it. And I think that's really a big theme of the book. So I have to ask, grow like a lobster. There's a metaphor in there somewhere that some people might not know. Why did you choose that title and how do lobsters grow? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. Lobsters. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. I read a book about the life cycle of a lobster in like, for my pleasure reading, call me a weird guy in, in the early of my business. <laughs> and um, I read this description about each time a lobster grows, it has to almost violently rip its entire body out from inside of its shell. Even its claw, it has to pull it out through that, that sort of hard knuckle. Imagine pulling the big claw through the little knuckles. And it was so traumatic. And many lobsters die trying to go through the molt process. And I'm reading this book and I said, oh my God, I'm the naked lobster lying on the bottom of the ocean floor waiting for someone to eat him right now. <laughs> and I, I really had this, uh, let's call it an epiphany, that um, businesses have times when we have really hard shells, we're secure and protected. And then there are other times when we've just molted. And at those times we've just molted, we're very vulnerable. And what I started to recognize, and if you were someone who worked for me throughout that 15-year or 10-year career after I read the book, 
uh, you'd hear me talk about, remember the lobster. We have to get ready for the molt. I have this belief that if you recognize that when your heart is shell, shell is hard, that in the future there's going to be a time when you're weak and vulnerable. And if you know that time is coming, it will be a whole lot easier to deal with. So if you can plan and prepare yourself for the fact that good times are followed by bad, you can build a business that is growing in a way that is more comfortable and more ready for things. And that's how the name Grow Like a Lobster came about. And the other thing is when I decided I was going to wrap the story in the metaphor of a lobster, I started to see all these other similarities between businesses and lobsters. Um, like my business, every time a lobster molts, it grows 15% just by a coincidence, which is what we, <laughs> our goals were each year. And also I learned that lobsters are one of the few creatures that grow constantly throughout their life and they can live very long, longer than human beings. And who as a business doesn't want to grow every year? Isn't that all of our ambition to be in a place to grow like a lobster? <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you can get, find out more about the book, more about him at joshua-dick.com. Josh, thanks for, for the story. Thanks for being on the show. I really loved how you walked us through your entrepreneurial journey and the successes that you had. And it's just very, a perfect episode um, for the show and what we're trying to put out there. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me here. Pleasure to talk to you and uh, really look forward to um, uh, seeing what you do in the future. Thanks so much. You got it. And thanks everyone for listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. I am Adam Kipnis. Look forward to having you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>